Well, church, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to Psalm 51? Psalm 51. Last week, if you were with us, then you'll recall how we began building a, a biblical model for prayer, a model we noted follows the example set for us in the scriptures by God's prophets, such as Isaiah and Ezekiel, and is patterned after the final prophet's prayer, Christ Jesus, who, when preaching on a Galilean mountainside, proclaimed, this then is how you should pray. And in words that we've prayed and heard sung, Jesus continued, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So emulating the Lord's prayer, this prayer, we began, as was emphasized last week, with praise. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, or God, may your name be treated with the highest honor and set apart as holy. Unfortunately, as we said, for many, prayer is less like an awe-filled conversation between a subject and their sovereign, and more like an order placed by a customer at a drive through window. We, we fail to notice, let alone appreciate and acknowledge the holiness, glory, and majesty of the one we're addressing. We're like the weary husband who walks into the house at the end of a busy day with eyes only for his recliner and his TV remote, who manages to completely miss his beautiful bride, radiantly adorned and awaiting him at the door. Have you ever done that, guys? Now, thankfully, thankfully, I have not. But I have had an experience where I came home and I couldn't wait to tell my wife all about my day. And so as I was excitedly chattering on a fact that I'm sure strikes all of you as quite surprising. But Melinda noticed, I noticed she was looking intently at me, which is somewhat unusual. Not, not because Melinda doesn't usually listen to me, but because my typical conversation subject matter doesn't have her sitting on the edge of her seat waiting with bated breath to find out just how primitive Baptists differ from two-seed Baptists and why that should even matter to we Southern Baptists today. But on this occasion, I noticed the intensity of my bride's stare, the fact that she must have also had a muscle spasm in her neck because she kept turning it to the left and to the right, all the while trying to catch my eye, which I thought was so sweet, as she clearly didn't want me to think she was uninterested, despite the fact that her neck was obviously bothering her. And so I kept blathering on about the SBC and how it continued to evidence the theological influence of the landmark Baptists. And Melinda kept twitching and, and twirling until I finally got so distracted, I had to ask, are you quite well? Which she finally bobbled her head at me one last time. And it, in that moment, as if slapped, I was jolted out of the 19th century Southern Baptist scene and I realized she had a hair appointment that morning. I had been speaking to my bride for some 10 minutes, looking at her, but not seeing her, hearing her, but not listening to her. I had been in her presence, but I hadn't really been in her presence, if you understand. And church, I, unfortunately, I believe that this is often how we approach God. We rush, rush into His presence with an agenda, and we fail to acknowledge exactly who it is we're talking to, with the result being that we miss out on prayer's purpose 
of lifting our eyes off of ourselves and fixing them on Jesus. Last week, we noted how prayer ought to begin in praise. And we examined, if you were with us, David's psalm of praise, Psalm 145. Today, I'd like us to see how the natural progression of prayer moves from praise to confession. As following our experiences of God's glory, we are immediately made aware of our sinfulness. A powerful response pictured in Isaiah 6, which is a text we referenced last week, where following the prophet's worshipful description of God's holy presence, he cried out, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty appropriately awed by God's holiness. Isaiah was immediately aware of his unworthiness and he confessed it. Praise followed by confession, which is the second component to prayer and the one that we're going to examine today from Psalm 51. So if your Bibles are open to our text, I invite you to follow along as I pray Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. Or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God. The God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. And my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. And friends, I would imagine we're all familiar with the background to this prayer of confession. The fourth of the so-called penitential psalms, following Psalm 6, 32, and 38. Psalm 51 records David's darkest day, documented in 2 Samuel chapter 11, where after years of war and uncertainty, Israel had finally achieved a measure of peace. And thus, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. But David remained in Jerusalem. And it was there, enjoying the views from his balcony, that David spied the bathing beauty who was Bathsheba. And in a moment of lustful hubris, he sent for her and committed adultery with her. 
a king possessed of at least seven wives at this stage in his life, who had borne him at least six children at this point in his life, broke God's seventh commandment. And then upon receipt of the news that Bathsheba was his baby mama, David plots to cover the whole thing up. He brings her husband, the valiant Uriah the Hittite, home from the front. Only he's a manner of honor and integrity, unlike his king in this moment. Uriah refuses to sleep in his own bed while his brothers in arms are in the field. Sadly, undeterred by his failure, David returns Uriah to the front lines, bearing the note detailing the king's diabolical plan for his execution at the hands of Israel's enemies. Joab, the general, carries out David's plan to perfection, and after an appropriate period of mourning, Bathsheba moves into the palace, no one the wiser. Only God saw it all, didn't he? And so he sends Nathan, his prophet, to confront the king. And using a parable, God reveals through Nathan's words David's depravity, at which point the king, overcome by his guilt, composed this prayer of confession in which he begins with an appeal for mercy on the grounds of God's character. An appeal for mercy on the grounds of God's character. Confronted with the reality of his sin, David cries out, Have mercy on me, O God. David's opening line, his plea, reveals his realization that despite being king, he isn't negotiating from a position of power or of influence. In fact, this isn't a negotiation at all, as he has no claim to the favor he begs. Mercy is undeserved. It's forbearance shown or compassion demonstrated to the one who is subject to another's power. And thus, David's cry demonstrated his appreciation of God's position. He may have been king over Israel, but God was king over all. And therefore, he fell under divine authority. And friends, I believe that this is where confession begins. It begins with a recognition of roles. If we are to genuinely repent, then we must acknowledge our standing before God. We aren't equals. We don't share the stage, as it were, passing the mic back and forth as we enjoy the spotlight. The truth is we don't even belong in the audience, let alone the building, for there is none like the Lord our God. As the psalmist asked in Psalm 113.5, who is like the Lord? The one who sits enthroned on high, who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth, which the answer is no one. He alone is God. He and no other is proclaimed in Isaiah 45.5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there's no God. Friends, we're not God. And therefore, in our confession, we appeal for nothing but mercy, and we do so on the grounds of God's character. As David prays, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. David grounds this appeal in God's character as revealed to his people. In fact, one commentator notes how all the great truth about God's readiness to pardon the penitent from Exodus 34, 6 onward, is the foundation upon which this entire psalm is built. So, pointing to God's declaration of his person to Moses, following the man's request to see God's glory in all its fullness, David fixes his appeal in that revealed when God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, you want to know who I am? The Lord, the compassionate 
the gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. This self-revelation documented in Exodus 34 forms the foundation for David's and our understanding of God's character. At least it should, right? For were we not to have this word, then we could approach God as other religions do or, or did, offering sacrifices, paying penance, basically bartering our way into God's good books through gifts, which when received, obligate him to give us what we ask for. But as Melinda read earlier, as you saw this morning, if you were in Sunday school, David prays this later, verse 16 of Psalm 51, you don't delight in sacrifice. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. Now, were God not to have revealed this, David might have appealed for mercy on behalf of all the good he'd done for Israel, which was substantial. And church, this is why God's word is so central to our existence as Christians. For in the Bible, God has revealed his character such that we, like David, may be under no illusions as to our standing before him and his holiness. Scripture reveals God as he is. And thus we have to know it so that we might base our appeals on that which is truly authoritative, who is God. And so David appeals for mercy on the grounds of God's character. He then continues with a confession of sin on the grounds of personal failing. Confession of sin on the grounds of personal failing. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. You notice how both of these expressions are preceded by the possessive adjective, my. In other words, David isn't confessing someone else's sin or transgression. He's confessing his own brokenness, his botch, his bungling of what God desired. Rather than living in obedience to God's will, word, and ways, David has deliberately disobeyed and he knows it. Confession cannot be made while pointing fingers at another. That's called making an excuse. And as I heard a wise man once say, there can be no but in an apology. Whenever someone says, I'm sorry, but they've scuttled the ship. And while they might feel better for at least having broached the subject that of this offense, whatever it is that's been weighing on them and has clearly led them to want to address this in the first place, they've bombed in their attempt to confess it. The presence of a but in an apology issued in our house leads anyone who hears it to say, do you smell that? Do you smell that? I smell it. It stinks. You know why? Because butts stink. It worked with my kids. You'll leave today and remember nothing else. Church, you can't confess sin while pointing fingers at another. And thus David rightly says, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Further, you notice how that phrase, I know my transgression, is placed at the very beginning of the sentence? I believe that this placement provides emphasis, such that, that an equivalent could possibly be rendered here. I know how grievously I've sinned, and the thought of it clings to me day and night. In other words, David recognizes sin's severity and its clouds have filled his life sky such that the sun's light has been completely vanquished. You've ever had that experience? 
you know, maybe a morning where you woke up early and you looked outside and saw a glorious day awaiting you and the sun was shining, birds are singing, you know, the work that was calling you promised to be fulfilling. You, as you faced the day lying before you, as it were, your heart was full. But then at breakfast, somebody said something, irritated you, and it surprised you, and you snapped. And you didn't ever intend to, but you snapped. And then in the awkwardness that ensued, rather than apologizing, you just got up and you walked out. Isn't it amazing how, how the day's outlook can change following such a simple exchange? Where before all you could see was sunshine, now it feels like a front's blown in. And where a gentle breeze blew moments before, now it feels like gusts are blowing through threatening to knock you over. Why is that? And church, I believe the answer is tied to sin's nature, which David makes clear in verse 4 where he prays, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. The reason that sin is a big deal, that it has the impact on our lives and outlook that it does is because of how big is the individual offended by it. God. And right here, church, I believe we've got to be careful not to confuse sin's severity with David's brutal act. And by that, I mean sin, what makes sin grievous is not the manner nor the extent to which others are affected by the act, which in this instance in our psalm was Uriah who was betrayed and murdered and Bathsheba who was widowed. Rather, what makes sin grievous is the standing of the one whose rule is transgressed, who is God. His friends, God is infinitely higher and totally other than all of his creation. We're not like God. And so contrary to the optimism displayed by secular humanists, we will never reach the perfection associated with divinity or utopia. We are broken. Humanity is broken and we remain so. God is pure light of pure light, eternal and unchanging. His perfection is such that none can look on him and live. Thus, our sin's offense, whether we lie or we commit genocide, varies not as it relates to him. Because as James tells us in his letter, chapter 2 and verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking what? All of it. All of it. Now, is, there's certainly a difference between these two acts suggested or referenced with regards to the implications in the now, right, and in their effect on others, but as for their impact on the rightness of God's speaking and justification when he judges, whether we, like David, murder a man or we simply slander a friend on Facebook, these behaviors both result in God's righteous condemnation. The murderer is no more condemned of God than the liar. The truth that we see Apostle Paul proclaim in, in Romans 3 where he notes all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And that in chapter 6, the wages of said sin is death. There's no gradation. Here as David cries out, he prays and he cries out for mercy on the grounds of God's character. Confessing his sin on the grounds of personal failure. He then makes a plea for restoration on the grounds of God's desires. A plea for restoration on the grounds of God's desires. Having acknowledged that his sinfulness was present at birth, even preceding birth. 
as in verse 5, David admits to being sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Now he pleads for God to cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. An expression of the same intent voiced back in verse 2 where David begged for God to wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So David isn't asking for restoration to a previous pristine state of sinlessness because as he's just admitted, he's never known such existence. Contrary to Pelagius and his many adherents across the centuries, both full and partial people are not born with a clean slate that we then dirty over time. Rather, as David makes clear, Psalm 51, we are born polluted Our nature is inherited from our first parents whose propensity to sin is passed along such that when our first cells came together or fashioned in our mother's womb, there resides the seeds of willful rejection of God. As Paul expresses in Ephesians 2, we are in our nature children of wrath, not peace. And thus David's pleas for restoration are pleas for restoration on the grounds that surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Translated literally, this verse reveals that what God desires, he will teach. So in essence, what we have here is David pleading for that which God desires and that God will then accomplish. And church, that's the beauty of confession. For what we long for is what God desires. And what God desires, he'll provide. A number of years ago, Geico had this Great commercial, and they've had a, a slew of them, as I'm, I know you're aware, but they had this awesome commercial, and in it, they showed this gaudy green car. It's one of those, like, lime-colored hatchbacks, and when you saw it, it just made you wonder, what in the world was the manufacturer thinking when he chose to go with that shade? But as the camera pans out on this awfully green car, it shows a man sitting in a house. It's, this, the car's on a website, and the guy's sitting in a house, And the man that's looking at this green car on the website is dressed in the exact same color green suit, sitting on furniture that is of the exact same shade, with appliances, even a shag carpet, the exact same color green, with the clear message being this guy, whoever he is, desperately desired that lime green car. So the person who is trying to sell this awful thing is offering the very thing that this guy wants. And church, in a sense, I think this is how God views confession. He desires truth, purity, and holiness. Leviticus 19, be holy as I am holy. Therefore, he longs for his people to confess their sin. Because as John writes later in his first letter, he is faithful, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all us unrighteousness, making us holy. David pleads for restoration on the grounds of God's desires. And that which God desires, he'll accomplish. And he'll do so consistent with his character, meaning that when he's done washing, David's going to be perfectly clean or whiter than snow, the expression that he uses there, that I believe captures the king's growing realization that with God, there's no such thing as a half measure. God doesn't stop halfway. And as you let that sink in for just a moment, as we bask in this amazing display of divine grace, church, we've got to be careful not to miss two of the implications of the extent or that the extent of God's forgiveness that it has for us. Meaning, first of all, when in Matthew 6, which we've quoted together earlier, Jesus' prayer says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
our forgiveness has to mirror God's, doesn't it? We can't forgive in part and expect to receive complete restoration. The whiter than snow for which we long has to be extended to those who sin against us. And this is tough. And in truth, unless we've received such love in forgiveness, we can't give it. Because this isn't something that we can generate on our own. Our forgiveness of others must be unconditional for only in such measure may our cleansing be considered complete or whiter than snow. So that's the first implication. In the second church, we can't deny God's complete cleansing. And by this I mean we've got to accept and live with the reality of God's total restoration. So often we, the forgiven, ask like David for God's mercy, we confess our sin, but then we live lives as if we're paying penance. And we say that we're forgiven by God's mercy, but then we behave like we're making house payments, as if by our good deeds, our church attendance, or tithe, that we're somehow balancing the scales. Because in the recesses of our minds, I fear that Satan has led us to believe the lie, God could never forgive you. Not for, not for, for all you've done. Not completely. There's just no way. Have you ever struggled with thoughts like that? Lies about the gospel and the extent of God's love for you and saving work on the cross? David appealed for mercy on the grounds of God's character. He confessed his sin on the grounds of personal failure, pled for restoration on the grounds of God's desire, and then admitted the cry for renewal on the grounds of personal inability. The cry for renewal on the grounds of personal inability. Verse 10, David spoke words that I would imagine are familiar to many of us, or at least sound so. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Notice how each of these requests reveals a subject and an object where the subject is acting, the object is being acted upon, and you notice who the subject is in each case? It's God. And who's the object? David. In each of these actions, David is little more than the object in whom God is creating the pure heart, renewing the steadfast spirit. God is restoring David's joy. God is granting David a willing spirit. David doesn't pray create with me, or create because of me, he knows he's nothing. God is everything, and therefore his renewal can only be brought about if God so wills to bring it to pass. Friends, in this cry, we once again, I believe, hear the God-glorifying harmony that is humility, where despite being king, winning countless battles, defeating a giant, securing a capital for Israel, David recognized he was nothing when standing before the God of the universe. David recognized, as he's saying, Psalm 19, that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And then in Psalm 8, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Church, David recognized that he was nothing more than an appendix God didn't need him, but he desperately needed God. God didn't need David, and yet, as Psalm 147 declares, the Lord delights 
in those who fear Him, who put their hope in His unfailing love. And therefore, as the object of God's affection, David humbly petitioned God for a miracle, the creation of a pure heart and renewal of joy in His presence. Have you asked this of God? Have you recognized that that you have nothing to offer God but your sin and brokenness? And even at your very best, it's, it's beyond offensive, such that Isaiah describes it as filthy rags or a polluted garment. Friends, sin is a big deal because it destroys our relationship with God, separating us from the life that He is, such that now all we may look forward to is death. And if left to ourselves, we are incapable of affecting any other end. This is why. This is why David cried out for God's renewal before turning in the final verses of his prayer to worship the God who saves. Verse 14, proclaiming his praise. Verse 15, acknowledging God's desire for worshipers whose hearts are broken by their sin and fully aware of their need of a Savior. Verse 17. Have you come to a point in your life where you've recognized, as did David, that you are a sinner? And it's not that you've made mistakes while giving it your best, but that you have willfully and selfishly rejected God's will and His ways. That you've disobeyed God's word, and in so doing, you have offended the holy God of the universe. If you have, then this morning I would pray that you would consider confessing your sin. Would you appeal to God for His mercy Mercy on the grounds of His glorious character? Would you confess your sin on the grounds of your personal failure and then plead with God for restoration on the grounds that that is His desire and cry out for renewal on the grounds of your personal inability so that you might enter His presence with confidence to worship Him? And I pray that if you're here today and you've never done that, that today might be that day because I've got good news that we who are Christ's followers share. When you do, God is faithful and He will do that which He desires to do. He will forgive you, but it gets even better because He's also just, isn't He? And so rather than simply sweeping your offenses off to the side and allowing your slate to be clean only for you to foul it up again, what God offers us in the gospel is a perpetual clean slate. For Christ took our sin on himself, all of its punishment on himself when he died on the cross. He then rose from the dead and now gives to each who are his own his righteousness so that we are forever changed. Now, this doesn't mean that God in his renewing that we cease to struggle with sin. And we attested to this earlier in our prayer together as Bob led us. But it does mean, church, that when we fail, we may boldly enter God's presence and confess our sin knowing he will forgive it and he will restore to us the joy of our salvation not save us anew for it's never lost for those who are his none can take from his hand but we certainly lose that joy our outlook changes when we break fellowship with God because of willful disobedience and no matter your use of that excuse of my unnamed brother I never knew the effect of said sin still steals your joy. And that's not God's desire for His people. Is there sin in your life that's stolen your joy? Are you living under conviction as did David? And maybe even as with David, he was ignorant of it, choosing to remain so until God sent him a prophet 
who brought him face to face with the gospel and reminded him of where he stood. Church, may we not allow our pride to lead us to a standing before God that makes us believe we deserve to be there. For each and every one of us needs God's grace and forgiveness every single day. This is what brings us to the foot of the cross, keeps us there, and grows us in our understanding of all that God has done for us when he brought us to life in Christ Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you've never found that hope and joy, and this makes no sense, let me tell you, it is, it is beyond my ability to articulate it to you, but God brings us to a realization of this as truth when you hear the gospel, which you've heard. And I'd love to speak with you about it as we close. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you are holy, and we are not, which makes your love of us, your people, all the more amazing. Father, it's true there's no words by which we can express our appreciation, our love for what you have done. There's no words to truly capture who you are and the love that you have displayed for us, but we see it fleshed out in the work that you did when you came. God the Son, in Jesus Christ, dying on a cross in our place, rising from the dead, and now sitting or standing in your throne room, God the Father, interceding on our behalf. Lord, we, your church, the bride, desperately desire to be holy. God, would you make us holy? Lord, this day we ask for forgiveness, for pride, for envy. Father, for the things that we may not even be conscious of because we've become so obtuse to your spirits moving. Lord, would you break our hearts in the sense that we become sensitive to your spirits convicting. Lord, and that only happens if we're spending time in your word, meditating upon its truths. And so in this time today together, God, would you once again refresh in us the appreciation for all that we have been given as your children. God, and might we live to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.